Hey everyone, Giordano here from the Juice Media. Welcome back to the Juice Media Podcast, a companion to our Honest Government ad series. This is episode 16, which is a companion to our latest Honest Government ad about the government's claim to be good economic managers, when in fact, they're a massive bunch of... Hello, I'm from the Australian Government. Due to the pandemic, we've officially entered the deepest recession in living memory. But don't worry, we're good at managing the economy. Just kidding. What we're actually good at managing is a PR campaign to disguise our shitfuckery and make it look like we're helping you. Like our decision to cut back financial support for millions whilst bringing forward tax cuts for the rich. Australian Government. Putting the end back in cuts. As you know, the Juice Media Podcast gives us an opportunity to discuss the topics that we cover in the Honest Government ads in more depth and detail, often with the help of experts in the field. And to help us understand the depth of shitfuckery in the Australian Government's recently announced federal budget and economic policies, I have the great pleasure to have as my guest today one of the most perceptive economists and political commentators in Australia. Dr. Richard Dennis. Chief economist at the Australia Institute and a prominent author and commentator whose writing is regularly featured in leading Australian publications, Richard Dennis has been described as a constant thorn in the side of politicians on both sides. People often ask, what are the sources that I use for the honest government ads? Well, Richard is one of them. His work has helped me to better understand economics and to write scripts for honest government ads that deal with economic policy shitfuckery, which is why I'm really stoked that he accepted my invitation to come and talk about it on the Juice Media podcast. I asked Richard about the federal budget, MMT, taxation, and whether the Libs really are good economic managers. His superpower, as you'll see, is to be able to talk about all of these things without making you either go to sleep or want to jump into a fucking volcano. So I hope you enjoy the interview and I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Richard Dennis. It's really great to have you here. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm really stoked to have you here because uh, you are our first economist guest, but more importantly, you are a great communicator. And so many of the problems today in the world, I feel, come down to communication. You know, how do we get pe people to understand some of the complex issues? And scientists are doing this amazingly. Climate scientists are really you know, really communicating really effectively more and more about the, the complex science behind climate change. And I see you in that sort of similar role where you've taken another very esoteric subject, which is economics. For many, it's it's quite confusing and you really help people to understand. You've really helped me to understand that. And uh, a lot of the things that you've written have helped me to write the Honest Government ad. So I'm really glad to have you here and I, I really would like to I'm really excited to introduce you to our audience some of whom will definitely know you but many may, may not know you and I encourage them to you know follow your work we'll include all the links in the show notes and also um, I'd like to you know start off by discussing the topic of our last two honest government ads both of which have satirized the economic policies that our government has introduced in response to the covid pandemic we we did an honest government ad called economic recovery and then the latest one um the biggest cuts and um you know we've spoken about gas-led recovery tax cuts all the way up to the budget so i'd like to start with the budget which uh, uh treasurer josh Frydenberg announced just a few days ago this week um, and I think it's really important for people to realize how consequential this budget is. What does it mean for the majority of Australians who don't own a fucking multi-billion dollar mining company? <laughs> so look, workers, students, women, the environment, and yes, the economy and the country. What, what does it mean for most Australians, this budget? Uh, look, budgets are always important. Um, what, the, what the budget is, is, it's the annual statement by the government of where they plan to collect revenue from 
and where they plan to spend money. And when the federal government spends money, man, does it spend money. Um, you know, you might think a billion dollars is a lot of money. Uh, in the federal budget, that's, that's rounding error. Uh, so the federal government spends, and let's just use round numbers here, around $500 billion a year. $500,000 million a year, every year, out the door to the people the government of the day thinks need it the most. And, you know, the most frustrating thing for me as an economist and as a citizen is hearing people say things like, oh, politics doesn't matter, they're all the same, who cares, I'm just getting on with my life. Great, get on with your life, but understand that some other people are making decisions on your behalf about who to give $500,000 million to. This is the most consequential thing. That should make that people happened. pay attention, yeah. Well, you would think it does, but, you know, my profession, the economics profession, plays a very important role in keeping people out of these conversations, right, by making the budget seem all about fiscal consolidation and the labour force participation rate and what is the impact of this in the out years, you know, even my mum's bored when I talk to her about that stuff. But when I say, mum, don't you think it'd be nice for the age pension to be higher and, uh, and, and, and to make literally some people who are millionaires who earn a million dollars a year and pay no tax, wouldn't it be good if they actually, people who earn a million dollars a year, wouldn't it be good if we tweaked the rules to prevent some of those people paying nothing in tax? And wouldn't it be good if we spent some more money on the age pension? What do you reckon, Mum? So that's a great idea. It's like, okay, right, now we're talking about the budget. So by making the budget seem all economisty, mm -hmm. and by making it seem all kind of highfalutin, you know, sciencey, statisticsy. This is a deliberate strategy to stop 25 million people asking simple questions like, "How come after 29 years of continuous economic growth, we couldn't afford to spend more money on health and education?" But then, the minute the economy collapsed, we could all of a sudden afford to spend an extra hundred billion dollars on anything we want. Guess what? We could always afford to spend more on health and education but our elected governments didn't want it. And that's why we didn't do it. Just still on the budget, I was wondering if perhaps you could, by way of uh, help, helping people understand what this budget means, perhaps you could walk us through this year from the time that the COVID pandemic exploded and the government shut down the economy. And, and I think everyone agrees that that was the right thing to do. From then, how, from that point, however, certain uh, policy decisions were made about how to get us out of that recovery and it culminated with this budget. Perhaps you could just give us that context and explain how we got here and, and I suppose also help us understand what the alternative could have been, in your opinion, if you had been treasurer, what, how would you have responded to this uh, situation? Yeah, so in January this year, the, the government was talking about delivering its first ever budget surplus. In January this year, the treasurer was determined to deliver a budget surplus. And all a budget surplus means is that over a 12 month period, the total amount of revenue coming in is greater than the total amount of expenses going out. And it's not the be all and end all, it's just maths. Okay, so we were planning to have a surplus 
uh, in January. It would have been the first surplus the coalition had delivered since Tony Abbott said we had a budget emergency seven years beforehand. We never had a budget emergency, but it's good politics. And when they got elected, they ran budget deficits for seven years. It's not the end of the world, but we we're going to have a surplus this year. And then coronavirus hit. And as you said, you know, there's, it wasn't just the government locking things down. Uh, a whole bunch of humans decided all by themselves before the lockdowns were announced, you know, I don't want to go to the movies. I don't think mm. I want to go to the shopping centre. So mm. the economy started to shrink in February and March, even before the government kind of told it to shrink. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the consequence of a shrinking economy? Well, um, lots of things. Uh, as, as people decide not to spend money on a restaurant, as people decide not to spend money on a holiday, the people that, that provide the restaurant meals and the holidays, they get, their customers vanish. So they start laying off staff. And when I don't buy a meal, I don't pay GST. And when the staff that got laid off don't get a job, they don't pay any income tax. So very quickly, government revenue starts to fall. And at the same time, what virtually every economist, I think, or safe to say the overwhelming majority of economists would say the smart thing for the government to do when the private sector stops spending money is for the public sector to step in and start spending money. And when the government deliberately steps into a slowing economy and starts giving money to people, we call that stimulus, fiscal stimulus. Fiscal just means money, stimulus. It's, it's like giving a shot of adrenaline to someone. It's like, mm -hmm. come on, we've got to get this economy moving. So when you and I stopped buying stuff, the government's giving us money saying, buy some stuff, or the government's directly writing its own checks and buying stuff. So, uh, so what we've seen over the course of this year is government revenue has fallen very sharply. And at the same time that revenue has fallen sharply, the government's been spending a lot more than it usually would. So the inevitable consequence of that was revealed on budget night when they said, oh, actually, we've now got a budget deficit that is spending greater than revenue of around $230,000 million, $230 billion. And that's good. That's, I'm glad they did it. And nearly every economist would agree. What we need to talk about as a bunch of humans and as a bunch of voters is of all the things to spend all this stimulus money on, what's a good idea? What do we, if we're going to pump money into this thing we call the economy, we actually have to ask which bits of the economy do you want to inject it into? Because if you inject it into the construction of uh, roads and tunnels, you will have entirely different short and long term economic effects than if you spent that same amount of money building renewable energy or, uh, or employing a whole bunch of people to work in aged care. So spending the money is always stimulus, but we kind of get trapped in a debate about should we be having stimulus when we should start with all the activities to stimulate, what do you want to see more of? Who needs the money? Which bits of the economy do we want to grow? You know, one of the one of the responses that we've seen to this um this budget is a, a lot of a lot of people are angry about the way that this government has, in a sense, 
betrays um, a lot of a lot of people um, by it's picked winners very specifically, um, and a lot of people have missed out. For example, you know the the, the budget includes very little for uh, women, uh, and I think just you know you mentioned spending billions of on on infrastructure. Uh, uh, the Minister for Families and Social Services responded by saying that women can take advantage of driving on the new infrastructure and roads. <laughs> um, so I wanted to, I mean, this is such, the, the levels of, of dishonesty and sort of twisting and spin here are, are quite high. Um, how do you feel that this budget, um, I mean, is it fair to be angry about this budget? Is it, is it a wasted opportunity or is the government actually, you know, are they practicing good economic management? Uh, well, and again, in the macro sense, and that's just a fancy economic word for big picture, in the macro sense, they, they're kind of doing about the right thing. They're, they're letting tax revenue fall and they're spending a lot more money than they plan to. That's, that's about right. But the what they're spending the money on, the micro, fancy economic word for small, like the small details of what they're doing are, are, are terrible and poorly directed and here's the important point, not based on economics at all, right. at all, or am I choosing my words carefully enough here? There is no economic foundation for the shape of the stimulus they've chosen. So let me give you a specific example. Please. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm a well-paid middle-aged bloke who lives in Canberra. Uh, my job is relatively secure. Uh, the sector I work in is relatively secure and there's not a, there hasn't been a there hasn't been a, a trans a community transmission of COVID in Canberra for months. I'm doing pretty well. I just got a very nice tax cut. Thank you, thank you on behalf of everybody listening. Thank you for sticking some money in my pocket. That was kind of you. Let me be crystal clear. I didn't need it. Thank you for your gift. And on budget night, we didn't increase unemployment benefits for the people in Canberra or Melbourne or anywhere in Australia who are suffering through this crisis. We did not. The humans who we elected to parliament, who form our government, decided that they wanted to give Richard some money and they didn't want to give some unemployed people some money. Now that is okay. There is nothing unconstitutional about that choice. But that choice has nothing to do with economics because every economist, I think, virtually, let's not be too general, but I'm pretty confident I'll go with virtually every economist would accept the premise that if we gave a hundred bucks to an unemployed person, that would do far more to stimulate economic activity in the areas experiencing high unemployment than if you gave it to Richard. And there's a fancy little bit of economics called the marginal propensity to consume just means if I gave you a hundred bucks, what proportion of it would you spend? We know that low income people who are unemployed will spend every dollar we give them because we give them so few dollars. And, and when you give someone like Richard a hundred bucks, well, I might just pay my mortgage down a bit faster. All right, I'll save mm -hmm. it. So from an economic point of view, giving me a hundred bucks has less bang for the buck than giving it to an unemployed person mm -hmm. and, and giving me a hundred bucks when I live in Canberra where unemployment's relatively low and there's not a lot of COVID doesn't squirt the money into the parts of the economy, the right. regions in the economy where the unemployment is. Right. So if I've understood correctly, 
not only does does the direction that the government has chosen to take and culminating with this budget not help those who really need help most, but it doesn't even there's no evidence to show that it would help the economy uh, itself. It, it, so yeah. So how is it that this government claims to be good economic managers? I mean, we really targeted, we satirized this in our, in our video. We really took aim at it because they're not really good at managing the economy so much as managing the PR and the marketing strategy to get people to think that they're good at managing the economy. How, how is it that this uh, continues to happen? I'm, I'm going to answer your question with a question. Uh, how is it that Coca-Cola convinces anyone that purchasing their brown carbonated cola drink at a much higher price per litre than anyone would pay for petrol will make people happy or healthy or have friends and be cool? Guess mm -hmm. what? Advertising works. Guess what? Repetition works. I find that repetition works. Do you think that repetition works? Because I think that repetition works. <laughs> and if 20 years, one side of politics is smart enough and let's be clear, they're running the country, I'm not. I'm not the treasurer. They're smarter than me. Um, if for 20 years all you tell people is I had to make that hard choice because I'm the only one who's a good economic manager, and if for 20 years powerful people parrot that claim, which is, you know, good because guess what? I, I cut taxes for powerful people and then powerful people tell everyone what a good economic manager I am. All right, so there's a bit of a head start for claiming good economic management when you're the one giving tax cuts to the media, when you're the ones giving tax cuts to the most powerful people in the country, mm. when, when the business leaders who want a tax cut for their business, when the media go and ask the businesses who want a tax cut what the definition of good economic management is, those business leaders, strangely enough, respond by saying, well, the one thing the government could do to help business in Australia and be responsible economic managers would be to cut the company tax rate for me. Yeah. <laughs> right? The question is, why would anyone believe this crap? But 20 years of repetition, people still buy Coke. Uh, you know, people still spend a fortune on some brands and think others are crap. And people still think some politicians have some innate. Tony Abbott once said economic management was in the Liberal Party's DNA. Yeah, it's. Very, I mean, it's very good message. It's very powerful messaging. It, it really kind of that get, that reinforces that mantra. And I suppose the question is, you know, they, they could very well be good at managing the economy, but what does it mean to be good at managing the economy? Good for who exactly? And it and it certainly is good. Who benefits from, from this budget? Like who, who actually genuinely goes, yep, they're good economic management. Like, can you just give us a sense of where the the you've mentioned tax cuts? So and um, just to fill in a gap there, um, the Australia Institute where where you work did some really great reporting showing that the benefit of the tax cuts goes overwhelmingly to the the top ten and twenty percent of uh, of income earners. But other winners in this uh, budget are mining companies who are receiving a massive windfall. They're going to be the ones who get to use the instant asset uh, write-offs uh, and all these kind of like technical things. Most people don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands to spend right away right now, um, you know, to, to write off. But, um, but mining companies seem to be all ready to go, um, you know, shovel ready. Um, can you give us a sense of who are the real winners in this economy? Sorry, yes, in this budget. I yeah, I, I can. Let, let me just get a little metaphysical on you first. Um, what is the economy? We talk about it all the time as if it's this concrete thing, the economy. 
And when we talk, once we create the metaphor of the economy, we can ask bizarre questions like, what does the economy want? And what does the economy need? And that's fine, but we kind of got to ask the first question, what, what's the economy? Yeah. Now, Google Maps is a wonderful thing. You can go to Google Maps and find almost anything, but I promise you, you won't find the economy on Google Maps because the, all, all the economy is, is, is an abstraction. It's, it's the collective activity of 25 million Australians. So when we talk about what's good for the economy, what we're talking about is what's good for the sum of the activity that 25 million people engaged in. And if everyone in Australia got a pay rise, then the economy would be would, would grow, right? There's no doubt about that. But if I get a pay rise and you get a pay cut, the economy didn't grow. If one part of the economy grows and one part shrinks, then the economy may or may not get bigger. So it's all about distribution. But because we talk about this abstraction of the economy, we get to have an abstract concept, uh, abstract economic debate, an abstract political debate about what the economy needs, when what we should be having is a simple democratic conversation about which bits of the economy, which bits of the economy do you think need to be bigger? And which bits of the economy are you happy to be smaller? Right, but we talk about the size of the economy when it's actually the shape of the economy that has far more impact on on you right. and me. So when we have the budget each year, the budget is literally about reshaping the economy. I'm going to collect more tax from this person, and I'm going to give more money to that person. But rather than talk about, hey, look what I did! Isn't it cool to be treasurer? Took money from him, gave it to her. Go me! Right? No, no. I don't want everyone noticing what I actually do, which is making arbitrary decisions mm -hmm. about who to get resources from and who to give resources to. If everyone knew that was my job, they'd be banging on my door saying, hey, you know, can I get, can I get on the good kid list? You know, I, I sat up straight and did my homework. Where's, where's my lollies? Mm -hmm. Right. But because we say, oh, we had to cut taxes to stimulate the economy, Right, we don't have to have a boring conversation like, oh, okay, so what we've done is introduce some tax cuts that disproportionately flow to middle-aged blokes like Richard and deliver almost nothing uh, to low-income earners. That's what we did tonight because we thought that was the right thing to do. So once we get out of the idea that there's this abstract thing called the economy that's in a particular state of health, and we start asking, hang on, which bits of the economy are you helping? We, we see it all quite differently. So what do we do on budget night? Yeah, the big thing was we cut taxes for high income earners. Uh, we announced some small one-off grants to some low income earners. We, as I said before, we deliberately decided not to increase unemployment benefits in a, in a permanent way. We introduced a big range of tax concessions uh, what's called instant asset write-offs. If you've ever filled out your tax return and you depreciate an asset, usually if you say you buy a laptop, you know, if the laptop's expected to last for three years, you're only allowed to claim a third of the price of the laptop each year. Instant asset write-off just means, look, if you buy a new laptop this year, you can claim the whole cost against this year's tax. Now that has some impact on getting people to go out and buy an extra laptop maybe a bit sooner. Um, but are we going to have a laptop-led recovery? I don't 
think so. Uh, as you said, the real beneficiaries of that are mining companies that were planning to spend $3 billion on a mine that's going to last for 30 years, and they get to write off all those costs up front, which means that they won't be paying any tax <laughs> this year at all. So, uh, so yeah, these, this, this, you know, the fancy economics stuff gets in the way quite deliberately, you know, of people just understanding, hey, what's the reshaping going on? So just always kind of remember this is humans making decisions that affect humans. And if your boss came in, there's 100 staff and said, hey, 30 of you are getting a pay rise and 60 of you are getting nothing and 10% of you are getting a pay cut, you'd understand what just happened. Well, guess what? That's what treasurers do every year in the budget. They, they pick who wins and who loses and who gets nothing. As you wrote in your monthly article, budgets are about politics, not economics. And the stories Australians have been told about debt and deficits are nonsense. Borrowing money to invest in the future is a good idea. Running big budget deficits with when unemployment is rising is a good idea. This is a quote from your recent monthly article, which was really focusing on uh, modern monetary theory, uh, MMT, and uh, another piece of great communication where you're helping people to understand um, this concept, which has been getting a lot of traction uh, in mainstream media. Um, and I thought, uh, and another thing that you wrote, which I thought was really good, is that perhaps MMT's greatest achievement has been has been to get the, the RBA, the Reserve Bank, the Treasury, and the Australian um, to admit that there is no shortage of money. So. This has been the, the myth that has been used often to um, excuse not spending money on things like, you know, as you said, you know, I, I, um, a lot of people have put their hand up and said, you know, we mean, need money for childcare, we need to raise new start. And often the, the, the simple excuse that has been often is, sorry, we know we don't have enough money, we don't want to go into debt because our children will have to repay it and all that stuff. And MMT, as you explained in the article, which we'll put a link to in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it, um, has really blown that out of the water. So now that we've gotten past that uh, uh, that that sort of false argument about uh, debt, what is what? Where do you see the discourse going next? Like, what is the next artifice of bullshit that um, this government is going to use to justify the way that it's allocating funds to picking winners and saying, "Here, mining companies, you have more money," even though really, so so much evidence shows that we should be spending on healthcare, education, um, which are the biggest job creators. And then, of course, on renewables and a Green New Deal, which would not only help employment and the economy, but also help address the climate emergency. How, how, how do you see the discourse shifting uh, since MMT has finally managed to put a crack into that easy, lazy excuse that the government has always used, debt? Yeah, look, it's, it's a big question, and I'll, I'll have a go at an answer. Haven't you but, got a crystal yeah. ball? <laughs> Oh, no, I mean, there's, there's a lot in the question, and I, I think a lot of people are understandably confused by a lot of what's going on. So, yeah, modern monetary theory, MMT, uh, is, isn't actually that modern. It's been around for about 25 years, and, you know, it stands on the shoulders of, of economists people might have heard, like John Maynard Keynes. And Keynesian economics has always said, look, don't worry about deficits. They're not good. They're not bad. They're just a number. 
So what, what, what modern monetary theory does a very good job of contending is that there's literally no relationship, none, 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 none at all between the government's uh, collection of tax and the amount of money it can spend on stuff. Um, there's no causal mechanism that means that unless you collect some more tax, you can't spend some more money. Now, and, and I agree with that proposition 100%. It's not actually controversial within economics and, and arguably never has been. Um, but the Australian public debate, our policy debate, our political debate has literally told Australians for decades that the number one goal of economic management, the number one reason to be treasurer is to deliver a budget surplus. So for an Australian public that's been told for decades a budget surplus is the be all and end all, you can understand why they get a bit excited when some economists stick their hand up and say, hey, according to our theory, you don't have to worry about deficits at all. So just to be clear, that's a big achievement. That's really good. I'm glad it happened. But you know what? Donald Trump is delivering a trillion dollar deficit this year. Trillion dollar deficit. And, and the Americans haven't delivered a budget surplus since 2001. The UK hasn't delivered a budget surplus since 2001. It is not a problem. Japan hasn't delivered a budget surplus in, I don't longer, you know. So it's a kind of Australian idea, not an economic idea. It's a kind of Australian idea that a budget surplus is the main indicator of how well the economy is going and how good the government is at economic management. When I studied economics in the 80s, no one taught me that because it wasn't true. We just made it politically true in Australia. And in, and in turn, MMT has, has, has sort of been a bit more disruptive in Australia, uh, not because the theory is different, but because our politics is so different. Right. We've, we've all, and again, I'm not saying people are dumb for believing a surplus is important because the average Australian has heard very well paid very important people tell them day in and day out for decades that a surplus is important. So if you've got the gist that a surplus is important, I don't blame you for getting that gist. I'm just saying it never had anything to do with economics. It right. never did. Donald Trump hasn't embraced MMT, right? Neither has Boris Johnson. They're just running deficits every year like they always have. Right. So it's kind but of... It's if it's happening already. They they're already practicing this theory, even though it's not sort of called. That's not what it's uh, being referred yeah, to. Exactly. As. Mm, yeah, yeah. But that that doesn't mean it's not interesting and important. I guess mm -hmm. I'm just saying, you know, despite the internet, Australia still doesn't seem to know the rest of the world has economies. <laughs> you know, so, so we we tell ourselves in Australia that if taxes went up, the economy would be ruined. Okay. Yeah. Anyone heard of Norway, Denmark, Sweden, mm -hmm. Finland? Mm -hmm. These are the highest tax countries in the world. They have the highest incomes in the world. They have the li longest lives in the world. They have the best education systems in the world. Oh, and by the way, they're the happiest people in the world, right? But you talk in Australia and you say, oh, maybe we should collect some more tax. Oh, the sky will fall. We'll go to rack and ruin. No, Europe exists. Mm -hmm. It's a thing. I've been there. I've heard about it. Yeah, actually, it's interesting you mentioned uh, tax taxation. We, I've been wanting to make an honest government ad, an honest ATO ad, actually, just to kind of focus on uh, on, a, on a specific thing about taxation because it, I feel like it's a, it's a fascinating um, 
paradox that governments rely on taxation, like, you know, the salaries of politicians are paid through taxation, taxation pays for so much. And yet all the time, it seems that at least conservative governments, uh, the Liberal National Party is always encouraging us to see taxation as a bad thing. And there's this kind of paradox as well. Hang on, shouldn't government of all and politicians of all people be you know, promoting, like shouldn't the ATO be making ads explaining how wonderful tax is and all the things that it does, but you never see that. So you kind of go, hang on, what's what's happening here? And it, it, it kind of shines a light on an interesting aspect, which I think the Australia Institute has been investigating recently, but really trying to explain why is taxation good? And it's it's crazy that we have to explain this, but can you explain? <laughs> <laughs> I can, and I'm, I'm so proud. Uh, I love working at the Australia Institute. This year, this year, this week, we, we took out a full four-page wraparound around the Canberra edition of the Australian newspaper during budget week, you know, when all the politicians and everyone's in town, a full four-page wraparound, and all it said on the front page is tax is good. That's great. That's great. And, and then, then inside, there's all this text about why it's good. But tax is good, um, and it is good. Uh, you know, there's an old saying: tax is the price we pay to live in a civilized society. Um, and while modern monetary theory is, and, and other econo economic theories are right in saying, you don't actually have to collect tax dollars before you can go spend the exact same amount in on health and education. But tax, what, we, what we're actually doing with tax is we are appropriating resources. If you tax Richard's income, then Richard can't buy as, as many cars or as many restaurant meals or as many books, okay? So if you tax some of my income away, what you're really doing is reducing my ability to go and consume real resources. Forget money, it's not about money, it's about real resources. So if I'm paying some tax, then by definition, I'm not buying as much stuff. And that means the government can go and buy stuff, right? If I'm not consuming real resources, the government can go and consume real resources. And guess what? The real resources that governments consume look quite different to my spending patterns. Governments, when they consume real resources, tend to consume things like public health systems and public education systems and public transport systems and police and armies. And that looks quite different. That's quite a different shape of the economy than me buying more home delivered meals and getting a new television. So again, we've got to think about the shape of the economy. And, and this idea that tax is bad, you know, and it burdens people. And it's a, a, you know, the whole metaphorical treatment of tax is it's like this bag of bricks that I carry around on my back, you know, just weighed down by tax. Well, you don't see ads on telly saying borrow money from the Commonwealth Bank and be weighed down by mortgage payments for the rest of your life. Or, mm. hey, go on a holiday on your credit card and be weighed down by your holiday. Mm. Right? When we buy things, we hopefully buy things that make us happy and good. Well, guess what? Buying a great health system is a great idea. Buying a great education system is a great idea. Buying a great public transport system is a great idea. I'm not burdened by that. My life is improved by that. But 
if I personally think, well, I earn, you know, I, I'm sitting on a billion dollars, I'm making 20 million bucks a year, I'm happy to send my kids to private school and I'm, I, you know, I've got my own personal doctor, so I don't really need any of that public stuff. You can see why some individuals might have a personal preference that they personally pay less tax because they personally don't want to support other people's health and other people's education. They're entitled to that personal view, but we've taken that personal view and pretended it's economics. And we've pretended that them paying tax will ruin my economy. No, it won't. Sweden exists. <laughs> I feel like all of this at the end of the day leads to the question of why. Inevitably, you know, you go, the government is looking at the same economic models and predictions as, as you are, I assume. They know the effects of this budget. They know who will benefit, who will get, who will be hurt and and what it will fail to achieve in terms of meeting the needs of getting out of this recession. So why are they doing this? I know it might sound like a simple question and it's tempting to be to provide a simple answer and say, well, they're just selfish pieces of shit. But that seems a bit simplistic. Some say it's ideology. But what exactly is this ideology? How does how do the Josh Frydenbergs of the world look at these economics, deliver this budget without going, mwahaha, Dr. Evil? They actually go, we are doing the right thing. What have you got an inkling, an insight into why? Uh, why? Um, well, lots of reasons. One, they want to stay in power. So delivering resources to powerful people who can help them stay in power is good for them, right? If The problem is everyone's cynical about politicians, but they're not actually cynical enough sometimes, right? So if you believe that the government would do anything to stay in power... Uh, then why wouldn't shoveling your money onto powerful people in order for the, for, the, for, for, for the support of those individuals and those industries at the next election, why wouldn't that occur to them? So one reason to do it is they just want to stay in power and they think that's a good idea. Two, uh, they might not know any poor people. And, and the poor people they like, they, might, they know they might not like very much. And all the rich people they know, they like quite a lot. So they might actually just genuinely believe that the problem in Australia is that some private schools don't have their own pools yet, rather than a lot of public schools couldn't afford soap at the beginning of this crisis. Soap. There was a shortage of soap in public schools in Australia. Well, we have private schools, you know, building new pools and indoor rifle ranges. So if you've never gone to one of those schools and you've never met the parents of the kids at those schools, why, why would you think that that might be the most pressing problem? So worldview does matter. Um, but look, politics is important and democracy is important. And I said at the beginning, you know, every year, 500,000 million bucks getting spent, we just need to decide on who. Politics matters. Democracy matters. But the skill of some politicians is to get people to vote against their interests. And it is a real skill. Mm -hmm. I mean, how does the American Republican Party get so many low-income Americans to vote for tax cuts for rich people. Easy. Say the Democrats want to take their guns off them. It's not hard. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you're not allowed to pick an issue that really gets people agitated mm. and get them to focus so much on one issue mm -hmm. that they don't actually care that much what you did on something else. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the last election in Australia for the full horror of this. We know, you know, we, we have very good data on, on how people vote in elections. We know 
what booth they voted at and we know you know what the socioeconomic status of the people around each booth is and and what we know in australia at the last election is that labor went to the election promising to close tax loopholes that benefited very high income earners things like uh you know cash refunds for franking credits that i'll put it to you most of your audience don't even know what that means and if you don't know what it means i'm pretty confident you're not getting any benefit from it right so labor went to the last election promising to close tax loopholes used by the very wealthiest australians and promising to make childcare free for people earning up to seventy thousand bucks and promising to make all cancer treatment free in australia now labor not only lost the election but it had big swings against it in low income electorates. It was poor people in Australia who voted against the party that was promising to close tax loopholes they didn't use and spend more on free childcare and free cancer treatment. So well done, Coalition. I mean this. I respect the it's skill impressive. required. Yeah. No, it is impressive. Right. And, and when people kind of say, oh, politics doesn't matter and they're all stupid. No, these are the smartest people in the country. <laughs> right. That is a great mm. trick. And they played it and they won. And until you respect that and until you acknowledge that and until you admit defeat and say they beat the idiots that thought helping poor people would win the votes of poor people. Right. Until you respect the full horror of that. Uh, you might just keep yourself into thinking that you're smart and politicians are dumb. This brings us back to the issue of communication, which is how we started off the conversation. And yeah, you're right. The Liberal Party are extremely effective, very skilled communicators. And I'd venture to say that if people don't know what franking credits are, as you said, that's partly because Labor wasn't very effective at communicating its policy to people during the election. A weakness which the Liberal Party exploited by spreading their own bullshit message that Labor's policy was a retiree tax. And then, of course, the Libs aren't only smart. They've also got on their side some very powerful communication allies, such as News Corp, which incidentally pays fuck all taxes and as you pointed out is one of the main amplifiers of the message that the government are good economic managers it's almost as if it's all connected yeah and, and look and the communication doesn't just stop at when the election comes i mean mm -hmm. at the last election uh labor lost two seats in queensland and it lost two seats in northern tasmania Everyone knows that the reason Labor lost seats in Queensland was because of Adani and coal mines. Everyone knows that. Does anyone really think they lost two seats in northern Tasmania because of the Adani coal mine? Mm -hmm. I mean, come off it. Mm -hmm. So winners write history. Right? No, totally. And, and they, don't, they don't stop their communication the minute the election's over. No, no, that's when they start it. Yep. And they go and tell everyone, you know why we won? We won because of this. We won because of that. When, when what we know is that the lowest income people in the lowest income state voted against the party offering them free childcare mm -hmm. and free cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, just on that point, do you see, I mean, have you had a chance to look at um, the, uh, uh, Anthony Albanese's budget reply, the Labor's position on that? Do you feel like they're offering a viable, genuine alternative to this budget? Uh, look, I, I heard the speech last night and I've, I've read the commentary today and I must admit I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. Um, I think the opposition leader, uh, you know, actually set out a more ambitious platform than I was expecting to hear in the middle of this crisis. 
Um, and yeah, fingers crossed more of that because ultimately all politics, well, all democracy is, uh, is us sort of choosing which people to stick in parliament to make choices on our behalf. We're, we're in charge of that. And if the people seeking that office aren't offering us quite interesting choices, then no wonder people think politics is boring and democracy doesn't matter. I think politics is fascinating. I think democracy matters more and politics matter more than people realise. But push comes to shove. We show up every three years and we choose between different parties. The, the more different their platforms are, the greater the choice that's being offered to us. And, and that's what democracy is really all about, choice. Thank you, Richard. I, I really, um, th those words really ring very strongly with with me here as well. And thanks for helping people to really uh, see understand the importance of, of these decisions and what's happening. Uh, and really, I guess, also be excited about what's happening because it really is a historic moment that we're traveling through. It's going to be defining for, the, for this decade and for generations to come. Um, I just want to end by saying, how can people follow your work? What's the best way of doing that? Um, the Australia Institute, and perhaps you could also give a plug to the um, uh, Economics Academy. You're running a course, a free course that people yeah. can follow. Um, yeah, so I work at a think tank called the Australia Institute, entirely philanthropically funded by, you know, nice people like your listeners. So thank you to any of our supporters that are listening. Um, uh, the Australia Institute makes all of its research not just accessible, we hope, in terms of language, but completely free. Uh, so all of our research is free up on our website, uh, personally, and from the Australia Institute, you know, there's a Facebook page, uh, Twitter, I tweet quite a lot. Um, and yeah, look at the moment, we've never done this before, but because of, uh, there's opportunities, I hate to say, from this crisis. And we we always put on events where people come together. Uh, we've been putting on a lot of virtual events and we're currently running a free course in introductory economics. We've had 5,000 people register, awesome. we can't believe it. Right. Uh, so there's that. And look, just a, a plug, I, I've written a number of books, but one called Econobabble, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. Uh, Econobabble annoys me. It fills our airwaves and a, a little bit of knowledge goes a long way. So, yeah, if people want to check out some of my books, I reckon that's a good place to start. Thank you so much for slaying the Econobabble out there. I don't know. I've, I've, as I said to you um, before we started interview, I, you know, I use Richard Dennis's writing a lot to inform my writing in the Honest Government ads. Um, he's really helped me to understand a lot of stuff. So we'll put the links to the uh, Economics Academy, which is a free course that um, is being offered at the moment, and uh, some of uh, Richard's publications and his Twitter. You can get all of that in the show notes uh, for the podcast or the video description. Richard Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Juice Media podcast. It's been a pleasure. I hope you'll come back uh, someday soon. Uh, thank you very much for uh, all the work you do. Thank you. And thank you for the amazing communication that Juice Media does. It, uh, it travels a lot further than economics and it's a lot funnier. So thank you. <laughs> awesome. Take care. Thanks, Richard.
That brings us to the end of this episode of the Juice Media Podcast. I trust you've learned something new about economics, or at least can take away a new perspective on Australian politics that you might not have had before. I know I sure did. If you enjoyed the podcast, all we ask is that you recommend it to your friends and family so we can spread the word. I'd like to end by thanking our sponsors. Just kidding, we don't have any because we're 100% independent and funded by our patrons. Thank you to our 3,400 patrons who make this podcast and our Honest Government ads possible. And a special shout out to our patron producers who are literally the backbone of the Juice Media. If you'd like to join them and help us grow and cover more topics, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the Juice Media. You've been listening to the Juice Media Podcast with me, Giordano. I'll catch you soon for our next Honest Government ad. Until then, take care.